One of the core books we're using for our Sacred Ground Group's work is the seminal book by the activist and civil rights leader Howard Thurman. And it's called Jesus and the Disinherited. It was first published in 1949, and it is a powerful piece of writing that deeply influenced the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's own work. In the very first chapter, Thurman issues a challenge that, to be honest, has haunted me these past several weeks. He said, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times that I have heard a sermon on the meaning of religion, of Christianity, to the man who stands with his back against the wall, the poor, the dispossessed. What does Christianity say to them? The issue is not what it counsels them to do for others, but what does Christianity offer to meet their own needs? Now this is a sharp indictment for a faith that claims to place the poor and the orphan at the forefront of our beliefs and our actions. But Thurman is forcing us to see beyond the words. For all our talk about helping the poor, the less fortunate, it's a cold reality that we are more comfortable spiritualizing our Christianity, taking it away from the day-to-day realities that so much of the world struggles with, and placing it in the comfortable confines of a brightly lit church on a Sunday morning. See, the church, any church, is much more comfortable aligning itself with power, with strength, than it is really connecting with those who, as Thurman says, have their backs against the wall. Now this morning, I don't pretend to add to Mr. Thurman's small number of sermons that speak to the man who stands with his back against the wall. Someday, maybe. This morning's scripture reading struck me as a a great framework, a great start to just such a sermon. The Genesis reading with God's promise to Abram slash Abraham, the everlasting covenant, well, that would be a start. Abram and Sarai have been wandering for 24-some years. They left home when Abram was 75 or so. And here he's 99, nearly a quarter of his life following a nearly forgotten promise to find a new home. And without an heir, childless most of that time, Ishmael, Hagar's young son, is nearly 13 by this time, and Isaac is still a year away from being born. And Abraham models how obedience fulfills faith. Abraham and Sarah held faith for two and a half decades. And now God declares the everlasting covenant. No matter what happens, God will be there. And multitudes of nations will be their descendants. So I'd like to think a message to those with their backs against the wall would be a message of the everlasting presence of God, the everlasting covenant. This is the concrete expression of God's freedom and God's determination to bring about reconciliation on God's terms, not on ours. God is at the center, initiating and maintaining this covenant no matter how far we fall. God's always there, even when we might not feel like it. And Paul's letter to the Romans picks up the election story of Abraham and and centers the whole of Christianity around it. And I know this part of, part of Romans, Paul's writing here, can be a little confusing with seemingly complex ideas like justification and reckoning of righteousness and faith versus the law. But it's a critical part of his thinking, and 
and we're spending time just digging, out, digging around on it. Now, Abraham is a man of great faith. Paul tells us, before there was any law, i.e. before the circumcision, which is left out in today's Genesis reading, but is what happens immediately after the covenant is declared. So before the law, God gives him an everlasting covenant because of the faith that he has. And we today are also given a covenant because of great faith. A faith like Abraham to participate in this eternal blessing and grace. And Paul uses a parallel between a nation being born from a barren woman, from Sarah, to a people from many nations being birthed through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, this promise that the same God who brought life through Sarah also brings life from death in the resurrection is the central promise of of Paul's faith. And what's our response to that faith? The reading suggests obedience. That obedience fulfills faith and in, in doing so makes a sacrament of the everyday. A sacrament that is the visible and concrete response to faith. In it, obedience manifests that invisible relationship of trust between God and us. Sacrament of the everyday. That's what obedience gives us. And I like how that sounds. It's an opportunity to bring God into our lives every single moment. So Paul's message of hope to Thurman's man with his back against the wall is God's promise of life. The God who brings life from death will do the same for those of us who have faith and obedience in this world. Now, I'll admit that my responses to Thurman's challenge so far have been a bit otherworldly. The everlasting presence of God and the promise of life and the resurrection are good and all, but, but they don't do much to address the dispossession, the oppression that force his man's back against the wall. It doesn't offer much to help him meet his own real needs. Let's see what today's Gospel reading from Mark again. See what that might offer. Last week we opened Lent with Jesus' baptism and His 40 days for beret in the wilderness. And this Sunday we jump forward to nearly the middle of the Gospel. Peter has just declared Jesus the Messiah, the high point of the Gospel. And that's the culmination of a fruitful period of teaching and healing and a couple of miraculous feedings. But this reading's different. One can almost feel the mood in the room change with today's scripture. He opens by predicting his own torture, rejection, and death, followed by a resurrection. Peter and presumably the other disciples must have missed the last bit about resurrection because he's all over Jesus for any kind of indication of suffering and death. You see, this doesn't fit into the Messiah narrative that he knows. You know, the one that's overthrow the Romans, take back the promised land, live with plenty for eternity. There's no space for suffering and death. It's just not what a Messiah does. Jesus rebukes Peter sharply and publicly in front of the disciples. You are speaking Satan's language, focused on power and achievement and not on things important to God, like love, compassion, like welcoming the poor and the dispossessed. Jesus continues, and you can almost sense the disciples tensing up, wondering what exactly they've got themselves into. Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You'll face great suffering unto death. He quickly paints an extremely bleak picture 
of the disciples' prospects. And it's no coincidence that Jesus uses the cross imagery in his outburst. The cross would have a very specific imagery in the Roman Empire. For example, in in the year 6 CE, Romans crucified nearly 2,000 Galileans for treachery against the state. Kind of like the guillotine or the lynching tree or the electric chair in later years, its significance as a tool of state-sanctioned capital punishment was crystal clear. So carrying your cross was more than a metaphor for humility and self-denial. It was very much a reminder of the mortal danger that comes from following Jesus. Follow me. Walk with me in my suffering and death. Celebrate my resurrection and triumph over death. And then expect the same for you. This is the essence of what Martin Luther later called the theology of the cross. It understands the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. For Luther, to know God is to know God hidden in suffering. And it's a maddening truth about who God is, is that it always contradicts what we expect. God's mercy is given to sinners, not just the righteous. God's strength is exposed in weakness. God's wisdom is hidden in parables and stories, not a clear to-do list from a self-help manual. God is found in uncertainty, danger, and suffering, the exact place we're most likely to think that God is absent and not there at all. It's difficult to maintain a theology of the cross like this when our church and the broader culture uniquely surprise success, effectiveness, personal fulfillment as core values. When we do anything we can to avoid pain, we're denying a theology of the cross. A theology of the cross carries some painful declarations. The church is not Christendom with its power worship. Faith is not a certainty. The outcome we seek might not happen. Hope is not optimism. It's realism. Love is not painless. It's a messy world, but God's still there. In this second week of Lent, we can see with new eyes the cross that is at the center of Jesus' redeeming work. It is at the center because it sets up God's definitive triumph of the resurrection. In his blog post on Friday, theologian Kurt Willems made the provocative statement that we, quote, underhumanize Jesus, that we're comfortable with a spiritual and divine Jesus, but when we overemphasize that part of Jesus, we miss the opportunity to listen to and learn from the words and actions of the human Jesus. Willems contends that Jesus offers example after example of what humans should do when we encounter situations similar to those he did. Jesus shows us a clear picture of what it means to be a human being. So what can we learn from Jesus about taking up the cross? Jesus calls us to be disciples. But what's that mean? In taking up our cross, we take responsibility for what's going on in our own journey of faith, just as Jesus was doing. He's walking the path of humility and selflessness, of love and service. We're invited to walk that path with him. The beauty of Jesus' life is that it's a roadmap we can use for discipleship, prayer, service, teaching, suffering, responding to anger, being angry, being rejected, betrayed, 
denied. It's all there. And while I know I'm, falling, I'm still falling short of Howard Thurman's call for a sermon that speaks to the man with his back against the wall, I'd suggest the Gospel reading opens a door. Not a door to a sermon, maybe, but maybe to a way of life that takes up the cross and makes a life's work of tearing apart and rebuilding a more honest, more just world. One that hopes, and sometimes beyond hope, that there can be a society a society that's on this side of Judgment Day that truly welcomes the dispossessed, truly helps the poor, truly speaks to the man that's back against the wall. When we are able to accept Jesus for what He truly is, the suffering servant who lays down His life for others, then we can better understand who we are. And we do what He does. We deny our own self. We take up our cross and we follow Him. Nothing's going to stop us. Amen.